0: If you have Bibles, you can go ahead now and make your way to the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes chapter 11, uh, which if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles, um, page 559 uh, is where you'll find today's text. Uh, We are in uh, the last two weeks of our series in Ecclesiastes. It's today and next Sunday, uh, and then we're all done. Uh, And as perhaps you'll hear started to here last week, and hopefully we'll hear more today. Once we get to the end of chapter 9, there's a turn that takes place uh, in this book. This preacher king who was writing this, Koholeth, as we've been calling him, uh, he picks up the pace in these last few chapters. And there's a sense here, again today in chapter 11, that he's beginning to drive toward his ultimate conclusion, which is what we're going to arrive at next week. So in chapter 11, where we find ourselves this morning... As he's considering how uncertain life is, Koheleth much more clearly lays out a path forward. So there is much that is uncertain about life, but there is also certainty. And you've heard Casey talk about that already a little bit this morning. So we must consider how we will live in light of both, certainty and uncertainty. So listen now with open ears to this book that we love. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 11. I'll start there in verse 1 and read all, all 10 verses. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet, and is pleasant for the eyes to, it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for, these, for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. This is God's word. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. So help us now to hear and to obey what you will say to us today. We pray this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So, uncertainty and certainty. First, let's talk about uncertainty. Uh, a 19th past, uh, century pastor and theologian who I've quoted before in this series uh, named Charles Bridges says this He says, Man prides himself upon what he knows or fancies he knows, the extent of his knowledge. Much more reason has he to be humbled for the far wider extent of his ignorance. Much more reason has he to be humbled for the far wider extent of his ignorance. What we know is so often overshadowed by what we don't know. And four times in the first six verses of this chapter, you hear these words, you do not know. You do not know. Verse 2, you do not know what disaster will happen on earth. And we see this all the time in our own nation and in our world when we turn on the news. Ask the people even this week of California who continue to lose homes and possessions and even worse, loved ones to the wildfires that are burning there. Ask people who have lived through a hurricane in New Orleans several years back or Houston last year or the Carolinas this year. Between uh, Kansas City and North Texas, I lived in Tornado Alley uh, for more than a decade. And during that time, uh, I never actually firsthand saw a tornado touchdown or was ever really in any imminent danger from one. But then seven years ago, uh, in this span of a couple months in between when Shay and I had made the decision to move uh, here to central Pennsylvania, and then when we actually did move here, there was, and uh, I think it was July of that summer, an earthquake that happened near D.C. and the aftershocks of which were felt up here. Anybody remember that? Summer of 2011? And then a couple months after that, in September, the Susquehanna River had one of its worst floods in its history. Uh, at the time, we had already sent our stuff ahead um, to this area in some of those pods that you like self-pack and then ship on the back of a, of a moving truck. And so we weren't sure if they were still going to be sitting outside of our apartment, which was on 2nd Street in Wormleysburg, uh, or if they were going to be, like, in the Chesapeake. (laughs) Fortunately, they were still there. They were still out where we'd left them. And then we moved here, uh, and within a couple weeks after we moved here, the city of Harrisburg declared bankruptcy uh, and was taken over by the state. And at that point, I was like, what kind of godforsaken wasteland (laughs) did we just move to? man-made like the, like the budget crisis, like the bankruptcy, or natural, you do not know what disaster will happen on earth. What we do know is that they will happen. They will happen. It's just a matter of when, uh, it's a matter of where, and how much it will directly impact your life or my life. Verse 5, You do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child. So we know uh, a lot about conception. We, we really know a lot about conception, actually, in this church. <laughs> no, we, we talked about that a little bit as elders recently. We have to have a sermon that's just called, like, Calm Down. <laughs> Calm down. The nursery volunteers are, like, researching Chinese law about how to limit the size of families. It's just, it's out of control. It's out of control. But what, what, I'm, what, what I mean there is that scientifically we know a lot about how new life is formed. We know a lot about that. And in the centuries since this has been written, there's now websites and there's apps that track the growth of a baby in the womb of a mother. It will give you each week a comparable fruit size that your child is. But even with all of that, with all of that, how do human beings get their soul? How do human beings get their spirit? How do we become the image bearers of God that we are? That are created similarly, yes, but so obviously distinct from every other living thing. Beings with eternity written on their hearts, as Koholeth has already written in this book. We don't know. Also in verse 5, you do not know the work of God who makes everything. From from all that Koholeth has written so far in this book, are we not convinced of that yet? why sometimes the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer and die, our inability to make straight what God has made unknowable or crooked, as he puts it. Koheleth himself says, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? Like we heard and like we acknowledged today during our scripture reading from Isaiah 55, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are God's ways higher than our ways. So are God's thoughts higher than our thoughts. And then the fourth occasion of this in verse six, you do not know which will prosper, this or that, whether both alike will be good. As he's writing about these huge uncertainties of life, Koheleth is prescribing and he's carving out a path forward through that. See, there are generally speaking two ways that we respond to this massive amount of uncertainty in life. Paralysis or humble advance. Paralysis or humble advance, or even more specifically in this text, hoarding, holding on to everything, or generosity. And this is where you can really start to perceive the difference in the tone and in the pace of these last chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes. Because earlier in Ecclesiastes, if you've been with us, this will hopefully remind you, you'll hear him vacillate between options and not really land on much of anything. Here he unwaveringly from the start makes a compelling case for generosity and for humble advance in the midst of uncertainty. Cast your bread upon the waters. There are all kinds of speculations about what exactly that phrase means, but a common theme is that we should actually use what we have. That when we think that we're wasting our possessions or we're wasting our gifts, casting them upon the waters, that we will someday... Find them. It might be many years later, but we will find them. Use what you've been given for good, in other words. Because even if you don't see it, it is accomplishing something. And this, of course, is the the design of God himself, who is the ultimate example himself. The rain that comes down, it waters the earth, it does not return to the clouds without doing something. Just like God's word does not return to him void, he sends it out, it does something before it returns to him goes on to say, give a portion of what you have, not only to one or two or six or seven, but even give it to eight. Use what you have, spread the benefits of it around uh, in multiple ways. Now there's always a reason not to. There's always a reason not to. There's always a list of factors that you and I can come up with to hoard what we have. But here's the thing. The uncertainty of this life will inevitably either close your hand or open it. The, inevit- it will inevitably, the uncertainty of this life will inevitably close your hand or open it. You will either become more self-centered, more hoarding, or you will become more open-handed and more generous. As it goes on to say here in verse 4, if we keep looking at the skies, so to speak, if we keep observing the wind and regarding the clouds, we'll never do anything. We'll never do anything. We'll become paralyzed, we'll become selfish and stingy with our time and our money and our possessions, and we'll be tempted to justify all of that as the wise and right thing to do. Charles Bridges, again, elsewhere writes this, A measure of discouragement will always be connected with present duties. A plausible excuse for delay will never be wanting. Tomorrow will be more favorable, the storm will be over, and our business will be done with less hazard. So says the trifler in his own delusion. So says the trifler in his own delusion. Similarly, in, a, in the book of Proverbs, a recurring character that we meet there is the sluggard. And by no means the one to emulate, to say the least, he can't even put forth the effort to bring his hand back from the dish of food to his mouth. He just buries it in the dish and leaves it there. He, for fear of going outside and being productive, for being lazy and slothful, he makes up excuses like, well, if I go out to work today, a lion might eat me. A lion might meet me on the road. A modern-day kind of version of that for us might be, I might get struck by lightning, or I might get hit by a bus. And Koholeth here, it's as if he's saying, yeah, you might. Now get out there and do it. Now get out there. He's saying, you don't know, Therefore. Therefore, in the morning and in the evening, continuously sow your seed, withhold not your hand. He's saying here, have humility, because if you really grasp your own limitations, if you really grasp the extent of your own ignorance, my own ignorance, what else can we be but humble? But then with that humility, be bold, advance, take some steps, take some risks, because you don't know which of your efforts might prosper or perhaps even if all of them will turn out for good. There is not ever a perfect time for things in our life. Why is that? It's because this life and this world are so far from perfect. So if if we're prone to paralysis, we have to stop waiting for a perfect time. By all means, pursue wisdom, pursue prudence and, and appropriate caution for the endeavors of your life. But churches would never get planted. Businesses would never get started. People would never get married. Nothing will happen if we watch the skies and wait for a perfect time. In studying Ecclesiastes together, we've explored the vanity, the meaninglessness, the vapor of so much. And in the process of doing that, it's possible for us to become fearful about living a vain life. We don't want to be people who live a life of smoke, and that's good and right. We should consider our lives. We should contemplate our pursuits and see if they're actually worth something. But it's possible that in so doing, we might reach this conclusion that then the best way to live our lives is to do nothing, is to sit still for fear that if we do something, it might turn out to be vain. This would be a tragedy. This would be a tragedy and a faulty conclusion, which I think is precisely why Koheleth, after writing about the vanity of everything, writes this. Don't be paralyzed by a fear of living out some vanity in your life, because I hate to break it to you, you already have. I already have. And we will again. At some point in your life, you will indulge too much and feast for the wrong reason. You'll, or you'll not indulge enough and you'll fast when it is a time to feast. You'll try to be happy and gloss over everything when it's a time to go to the house of mourning. And other times, you'll not let your heart, you'll refuse to let your heart actually be cheerful and merry in this perpetual fear that the other shoe is about to drop. Francis Chan had this phenomenal illustration like 10 or 15 years ago. He's standing, I don't have the space to even remotely simulate this, so I'll I'll just have to tell it to you. He's standing on an Olympic balance beam. And he says, imagine that during the Olympics, out of fear that she might fall off, a gymnast instead gets up onto the beam and then just kind of gets down onto the beam, kind of on all fours and just kind of bear hugs the beam. And just sits there like that for about two minutes. And then gets off. (laughs) And takes her bow. Takes her bow. She didn't fall off, right? She did nothing, which is far worse. She did nothing, which is far worse. You can look that up on YouTube or Google. It's a fantastic illustration. He goes into even more depth than I did. But God forbid that we live our lives that way. How should we live in light of all of this uncertainty in life? Well, we should live. We should live. Don't be paralyzed. Be humbled and then step out into life, not hoarding what you have, but open-handedly using it generously. Second, let's talk about certainty. Certainty. We not only consider how to cope and to live in light of what we don't know, we also consider how to live in light of and cope with what we do. And so here's something we do know. Uh, An uncontested, undisputed certainty, regardless of gender, race, nationality, socioeconomic status, or creed. Youth is fleeting. Youth is fleeting. Youth or the dawn of life is vanity, Koholeth says. Remember that this word vanity in Ecclesiastes literally means vapor or mist or smoke. So our youth, even more than our lives, is here today and gone tomorrow how do we cope with this uncertainty or sorry with that certainty generally speaking we cope with that in two ways we either idolize youth or we demonize youth we idolize youth or we demonize youth many idolize youth and so youth begins to be seen as the pinnacle of human existence or as our poet friend from new jersey bruce springsteen puts it the glory days the glory days of our lives Youth is when we have the freedom to do what we want and then the physical ability to actually follow through on that. So while you're young, the the thought goes, try to frantically soak up as much as you possibly can. You dread the demise of youth at every turn. When's this going to end? When can I not do this anymore? And you're sure that everything after age 25 or so is just downhill. And then once youth does pass by, because it actually does, if we idolize youth, we spend the rest of our lives trying to somehow get back there living in denial, some forms of which are admittedly crazier than others. So when I say that this is like an uncontested certainty, it's not completely accurate anymore. Uh, As you may have read in the news even this week, there's a man in the Netherlands who's petitioning the courts there to legally lower his age by 20 years. He's petitioning the courts to change his birth date, to move it 20 years so that he's no longer born in 1949 like he actually was, but now he's going to be born in 1969. And his stated reason for that is that he's, you know, he's young, he's doing well at, at 69. He doesn't want to suffer the ramifications of age discrimination. That's his stated reason to the courts. But whenever he's interviewed in news articles, it seems like the main reason, the real reason, is that it will help his dating prospects on sites like Tinder. I guess more women want to date the 49-year-old than the 69-year-old man on Tinder. So that seems to be his real motive there. Okay, That's a new and crazy way to deny aging. But it comes from the same heart, from the same kinds of denial that for generations has led us as people to things like cosmetic surgeries, like sexual fantasies and encounters with men or women decades younger than us, or even more benign things like dyeing our hair or wearing certain kinds of clothes that are clearly meant for someone much younger than you are. So I love, as I know you do, Barry DeRoos. And I love that Barry will never show up here in like skinny jeans on a Sunday morning. <laughs> Glory to God. Thank you, Barry. You're holding strong on the line here. We appreciate that. On the other hand, some people demonize youth. Some people demonize youth, seeing it as only good for producing folly and heartaches and wounds that then you've got to unpack and carry with you the rest of your life. Or we see young people as a a drain on society and we lament what the future will be when they become the ones who are in leadership positions and they're the ones in charge. So for example, when I say the word millennial, what's the connotation that immediately comes to your mind? Is it a good one? Probably not. Probably not. What characteristics come on? In in this cultural moment, in many circles, millennials have become society's punching bag, (laughs) haven't they? The, the, the thought goes, they're lazy, they're entitled, they refuse to grow up. Is that true? Well, for some of them, yeah, it is true. It is true. But wasn't that also true of some of the Gen Xers? Wasn't that also true of some of the baby boomers? Dare I say, even the greatest generation? Do they have some of those folks too? Let's not, so there have been, it's important to acknowledge this, there have been some significant cultural kinds of shifts. Yes. But let's not forget that especially when youth has passed us by, we are inclined to turn around and to demonize the youth that comes after us. Now, in an earlier chapter of Ecclesiastes, we might imagine Koholeth vacillating between idolizing and demonizing youth. Like back in chapter 7 when he writes, don't be too righteous, don't be too wicked either. Don't be too wise, don't be a fool either. We might find him dancing back and forth between those things. But here... He offers not a bland midpoint between the two, but a better way forward. Redemptive rejoicing. Redemptive rejoicing. How should we understand youth? We should rejoice in it, but we should rejoice in it redemptively. So in verses 7 through 10, Koholeth acknowledges a few things. For one, he recognizes the real gift that youth is. The uniqueness of that season of life, which generally speaking, and of course there are exceptions to this, But generally speaking, it's characterized by far more light than darkness. As he writes in verses 7 and 8, there is much light and there is much sweetness in life. There's much in our lives to rejoice in and to enjoy. But the longer you live, the more days of darkness there will be. If we were to graph this out, if we were to graph this out, there's a direct relationship between the length of your life and the number of the days of darkness that you will experience. As one increases, so does the other. And Shay and I in our own family feel like we're beginning in our 30s to like, start to experience this. I know many of you have experienced this for far longer because you've lived for far longer. But in just the past couple months, uh, a few people that we know and love have been diagnosed with some form of cancer. Um, our parents are aging and experiencing the things that go along with that. Uh, More and more of our friends, more and more of our family members are experiencing job issues, marriage issues, health issues, problems and issues with their their own kids. Over the past two weeks, then, I've also spent a lot of time with other pastors. And the darkness that exists in, in our own lives, as well as in the lives of those that we're seeking to love and to care for, like if you've lived long enough and your circle is big enough not a day goes by that you could not characterize as a day of darkness. If you live long enough and your circle's wide enough and you love people in that circle, not a day goes by that you could not characterize as a day of darkness. So youth is a time to rejoice, to enjoy, to find cheer in your heart. But that can and does mean very, two very different things to different people the way they hear it. So it can, and for many people, does mean As he says in verse 9, walking in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. This is a really intentional phrase that's used by Koholeth in verse 9. Because back in the book of Numbers, chapter 15, God tells Moses to call the people of Israel to remember his commandments. He says, tell the people of Israel they must remember the commandments of God. Why? Specifically so they don't follow their own heart and their own eyes. It says there in Numbers 15, 39, we are inclined to follow those things. We're inclined to whore after them is the language of that verse. In other words, in the name of rejoicing in our youth, we are inclined to sell ourselves, to sell our souls to whatever our hearts and our minds want in that moment. We, to use the antiquated phrase, sow our wild oats, or to use maybe the more modern phrase, we follow our heart. We do what we want without thought of consequence. But this is a flawed and counterfeit form of rejoicing in youth. It's a flawed and counterfeit form of rejoicing in youth. It's part of the self-indulgent quest that Koholeth has embarked upon and found wanting. Remember who he is and what he's writing in this book. He's the one who went after everything his heart desired, everything his eyes wanted. He kept from himself no pleasure and he got all of it. And he concluded at the end of all of that that it did not satisfy That it was all vanity. And moreover, as he says here at the end of verse 9, know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. This counterfeit form of rejoicing is different from what he then says in verse 10. Remove vexation from your heart. Put away pain from your body. The word pain there can also be translated evil. It's the same word that gets translated evil. And so what if... Instead of creating more vexation and more pain, we use the freedoms and the gift of youth to remove vexations, to put away that pain. What if we use the gift of youth redemptively? The days of our youth form us deeply. I'm sure I have to convince none of you of that. And the older that we get, the more days of darkness that we experience and the more the weight of the pain and the vexation of that darkness presses down upon you, the harder you will find it in your life to reorient your life, to reorient your priorities in substantial ways. Because at that point, you're just trying to hold on. You're just trying to endure. So there's an opportunity in the days of our youth to lay a foundation of faithfulness to God, of selfless service to other people, of other people, of open-handed generosity of wise but faith-saturated risk for the sake of the kingdom of God. There's opportunity to leverage this light of youth against these impending days of darkness that sin will wreak havoc on in your own life and in this world. What is it, we must ask ourselves, that will actually cheer my heart? What is it that will actually cheer our heart? Because isn't that what we long for anyway? None of of us set our sights on simply experiencing these fleeting moments of happiness which then vanish. And so instead of this counterfeit rejoicing where we chase the appetites of our eyes and the appetites of our hearts, pursue instead the kind of sin-combating, vexation-removing, pain-and-evil-obliterating joy that will actually satisfy you long after the smoke of your youth evaporates. One more good word from Charles Bridges this morning. He says this, Who does not yearn over their best interests and long to sweep away their false hopes and their destructive charms? The heart turned from its own way and turned to God brings the substance of happiness instead of the shadow, the reality instead of the name. And he goes on to say this, Youth devoted to sin is the saddest. Youth consecrated to God is the brightest object in a world of darkness and sorrow. Whether you are right now in the midst of your youth, or whether it has passed you by, because of the certainty of its vanity, may you neither idolize nor demonize youth, and may you also not find some kind of vacillating, bland midpoint in between those things. Instead, may we be an intergenerational people who rejoice redemptively in the opportunity and the light of youth, perceiving it, as chapter 3 puts it, beautiful in its time. Beautiful in its time. Now next week, we will reach the end of this book. And Kohaleth there will expand upon what he says here, kind of teases here in chapter 11, verse 9. Know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. This is going to be the hard bedrock conclusion of the book that we'll look more deeply at in chapter 12. But for this morning, recognize this incredibly profound but easily presumed, often looked over truth that what we do matters to God. What we do matters to God. Really think about that. That the God of heaven and earth, the creator and sustainer of all things, cares what you do with your life. What you do with your time, with your possessions, with your youth. Begin to perceive the deep meaning and the purpose that that imparts to your life, that your actions are of consequence and significance to the one true God. To our modern sensibilities, we hear the word judge, like God judges, and we cringe. But how much worse would it be if our lives were so inconsequential that God didn't care at all? God does care, men and women. It matters to God whether we respond to the certainty of this vanity of youth with redemptive rejoicing or this counterfeit, self-indulgent, selfish form of chasing our eyes and our hearts. It matters to God whether we respond to the uncertainty of disasters in the future with a closed hand or an open hand, with paralysis or with a humble advance. What we do matters. Of this we are certain. Because God has revealed that not only that our lives not only matter enough to judge, but that they matter enough to save and to rescue. That we actually matter so much, that God actually cares for you so much, that he will himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, enter into the vexation and the pain of this world's sin and darkness in order to reconcile us to himself. However many multiplied days of darkness you experience, Know with confidence that by his incarnation, by his life, by his death, by his resurrection, by his ascension and by his return, that Jesus is the light that the darkness has not and will not and cannot overcome. Looking to him then, the author and perfecter of our faith, may we open our hands in the face of uncertainty and in the certainty of vanishing youth, may we rejoice redemptively. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, Son of God, Savior who takes away the sin of the world, we confess that we are prone to take our lives into our own hands with a closed hand when we face uncertainty. We confess that rather than see youth as the gift that it is, beautiful in its time, and to use it rejoicing with redemptively, to look at it selfishly, to idolize it or to demonize it. We pray that by your spirit, even now this morning, that you would break up what is hard in our hearts, that you would make us people, because what we do matters to you, that you would make us, and because you have done so much for us, you have demonstrated your love and your care for us as we come to this table to celebrate, would you make us because of that people who do open our hands, who do humbly advance into this world, following you faithfully in all that we do. And that we would be people who use our time and use our lives well for your glory for the good of all. We pray that in Jesus in your name. Amen.